0: Well, if you have joined us since the beginning of our service this morning, I just once again want to say welcome to Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. We are so delighted that you're here with us worshiping our God, worshiping our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are in the midst of a series in the book of Psalms, a summer Psalms series that we've entitled Finding Our Way to God. You'll notice the graphic on the very front of your bulletin and the title there listed right beside the scripture for today's reading, Psalm 90. Those of you who were here last week, you may be saying to yourself, now, didn't he preach on this passage last week? Ding, ding, ding. You are absolutely correct. You get no prizes, however, for noticing that I'm back in Psalm 90 Um, You may remember that I decided, made an executive decision uh, last Saturday as I was getting more into the passage, reflecting, thinking, and realized, I need two weeks here. I need two weeks on Psalm 90, and so we're actually returning to the passage that we were in uh, last week. We'll be focusing our attention in Psalm 90 on verses 14 to 17, which is really the final section in this uh, beautiful psalm. And this section is really a prayer. The prayer begins technically in verse uh, 12... ...of Psalm 90 and runs all the way to the end of the passage. And this prayer arises out of those first 11 verses that are given to us in the text. And we gave those um, real deep treatment last week as we gathered together. And I just want to remind you uh, briefly of what it is that we um, coursed over and covered last week... ...just to prepare our hearts to meet with the Lord in these final verses. Uh, We noticed last week in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 90... Uh, that Moses, the writer of this psalm, is teaching us about the nature of our God. Right at the very beginning of this psalm, he teaches us, number one, that God is our eternal creator, God. He is glorious, he is majestic, he is greater than all of creation. All creation is birthed in and through him, and he sustains it, even right now, as the scriptures teach us, by the word of His power. And so he gives us a glimpse into the eternal creator God. And then in verses three through six of the text, he he goes right. Uh, toward us. He shows us who we are. He looks at what we called the mortal creature of man, or the mortal creature of mankind, and he shows that we are, we are weaker than God, that we are earthlings, that we come from the created order, and that our lives are short. There is a brevity to our lives. God is from everlasting to everlasting. We, however, last 70 years, 80 of due strength. Um, this is the course of our lives, and then we are uh, no more, And so he's drawing a great distinction between God and us. And then it takes a bit of a dark turn, if that wasn't dark enough. In verses 7 and then in verses 9 through 11, he teaches us that the God who is all-powerful, who created us and whom we are mortal creatures in relation to, this God is angry at us. He is angry at us. He gives a drumbeat describing God's anger and wrath in verses 7 and 9 through 11. And all of a sudden, there's a sobriety that really enters the text at that point, recognizing that we are a people under God's wrath. And then the question naturally arises is why? And verse 8 answered that question for us. Verse 8 says that we are sinners, and that even the secret sins that we commit are known by our God. And because we're created in His image, all of the sins that we commit are first and foremost against him. Even as David wrote in Psalm 51, I have sinned against you and you only after he had committed adultery and murdered uh, Uriah, or at least orchestrated or masterminded the murder of Bathsheba's husband Uriah. And after all that sin, he's saying, I'm really sinning against you. And so we get to, the, we get to verse 13 in the text and we realize that we're in a pretty bad place Um, How can we get out of it? And what Moses really teaches us is we just have to cry to God for mercy. There is no way out of it for you and me. There's no way sorting out of it for you and me. We have to cry to God for mercy. But I said last week that that cry for mercy was just the beginning of the answer. It was just the beginning of the answer. What I want to do today is talk more about the depth of that answer and unpack in more, what I pray, more beauty and more fullness what does it really mean to sit in the answer of God's mercy? And how does the wisdom of God in the mercy of God can become a daily reality for the lives of us as saints so that we might live, as the title of the message indicates, we might live in the light of eternity? So, with that as a way of just introducing to us the text and maybe even reminding us of where we were last week, I want to look with you now at the text of Scripture. Uh, together and as we uh, do so, I'm going to encourage you focus primarily at verses 14 uh, to 17 because that's where we'll situate most of our time. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. For the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever amen let's pray together father we believe that that the grass does indeed wither and the flower does fade we have seen it with our own eyes this summer one thing we're certain of as we attend now to this word in your presence is that that which we are listening to and hearing from your word it endures forever and lord we need some stability We need something that's going to be solid and not be shifting or fading or withering. I'm so grateful for your word. And I pray right now that you would give to us the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit in each of our hearts. To awaken us to the reality of this truth. And the sure foundation that it gives to us. And the beautiful portrait that it displays of your love. Come and meet us in this text. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a memorable character that John Knowles wrote about in a prize-winning novel entitled A Separate Peace. Probably a few of you have likely either heard the title of that novel, if not read it. The lead character in that novel, a character that I've I've always loved, his name is Gene Forrester. There's a section in the novel where Gene is waking up on one uh, cool, uh, bright uh, springtime day in New Hampshire when the weather is just absolutely glorious. And it's one of those days where as he wakes up and as the sun spills in the window and he's there in his bed just as his eyes are open with the covers tucked in around him. He has the, the sweet smell of freshness that you sometimes get during springtime, maybe after a, a rain or maybe in the newness of those green leaves, a kind of birthing or burgeoning of a new world. And there's something fresh about it, not stale and still, which is often the way it becomes over the course of the heat of the summer. That, that cool effulgence in life just sort of wafts passed and over Gene Forrester, and he describes a stirring in his heart. He refers to it as those days of which with inside of him an anticipation rises of the glory of that day. So deep is his stirring that it's like an inconsolable promise with stabs of joy rising up from within. What a description that is. It's like a day that has inconsolable promise. I think it was Steinbeck in the east of Eden where he describes a beautiful moment where you see those hills. Let's say the hills in middle Tennessee and they're They're beautiful, they're green, and maybe the the sun is behind them and there's something of a radiance that's shining uh, above and there's there's a part of you as you drive past them or as you walk past them, you just want to run up the hill to the top of the hill, and as Steinbeck likes to put it, sort of climb into the hill if you could and be wrapped in its beauty like a child with a mother. Do you know those moments in life? Where like the beauty of life and the desires of your heart seem to match. You know how quick and fleeting they are, but you also know probably how powerful, poignant they can be. And how in some ways they seem to touch something deep within us, so deep within us that it's almost impossible for us to language it. In fact, to try to seems to do it an injustice. In the text that's before us, I think in Moses' prayer, he's wanting us to know that as we have those experiences in nature, we have those experiences in relationships, we have those experiences with, with others in life in various contexts, those are just glimmers, little flashes of light that lead us to the real deep desire of our hearts that can only be satisfied. In the steadfast love of the Lord. As we look at this text together, I want to just look at it with you in in two ways. I want us to look together at what it means to be satisfied in the love of the Lord. And then I want you to see that in the love of the Lord, once we're satisfied, we have really good work to do. Really good work to do. You see, that was something that Gene Forrester recognized. That as that inconsolable longing touched his heart in the spring effulgence of that day, he couldn't stay in bed. He had to get up and seize it. He had to do something with it. With the joy of that gift, there was something to be done. We're going to look at the satisfaction that comes in the love of the Lord and then from that satisfaction, the meaningful work that he's called us to do. Look at it there in verse Well, verse 14 of the text, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. It's really quite fascinating when you put this Psalm 90 in context that, well, that Moses would be talking about the people of God ever being satisfied. Uh, He walked with the people of Israel during a season that was marked with almost nothing but dis satisfaction. I mean, before the people of God even got eyeshot shot out of Egypt, and they're there at the cusp of the Red Sea, they're already complaining about what it is that God has done. Exodus 14, they complain to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us out here to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out here? For it would have been better for us to just serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And of course God through the power of Moses funneling his spirit through Moses parts the Red Sea, they cross over on dry land and all of the Egyptian army is laid waste and Moses sings that incredible victory song in Exodus 15 singing of the redemption of God and then before the victory song closes... The bellies of the people of Israel start rumbling. And then their mouths start grumbling. Oh, that we would have died at the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, Exodus 16, where we had our meat pots and ate bread to the full. Now, I'll, I'll challenge you to go look and see if they had meat pots and bread to the full in Egypt because there's no mention of it earlier in the text. Their mind is playing tricks on them. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Yeah, that was Moses' purpose. That's what God's up to here. Of course, that drumbeat of complaining and grumbling is an outward expression, isn't it? Of an inward problem. A problem of the heart. A discontented heart. I was thinking yesterday about the original sin of Adam and Eve, the eating of the forbidden fruit, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as I was writing in my journal on it, I thought to myself, you know, really, the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the temptation surrounding it happened on the back of a discontented heart that was tended within Eve and then in Adam. The serpent himself had called into question God's goodness. Did God really say... I'll tell you the real truth about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He's really holding out on you. Listen, Eve, this is a chance of a lifetime, I tell you. Right over there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you could walk and pluck its fruit and taste it, and the world that you've always dreamed of will then be yours. You will, in a bite, be like God. Can you hear the implication in the words of what the servant is suggesting in his temptation? Eve, you could be so much more than you are. Don't be satisfied with how God has made you and the parameters that he's placed around you. Real satisfaction awaits you on the other side of the sweetness of that fruit. You should hear in that, the well, it's actually the the strategy of advertising, isn't it? Every commercial and every ad that you've ever read has told you that you're not pretty enough or healthy enough or wealthy enough. But if you buy this thing or you do this, then your wildest imaginings will come true. You see, the serpent at the end of the day is a a salesman, a car salesman of sorts, nothing against car salesmen. But he's selling a hunk of junk and he's selling it like it's a brand new car. This is, of course, why so many of us are discontent, right? We listen to those advertisings, And we believe that those things will be our ticket to happiness. It's why we move through cars so fast and move through houses quickly. And the clothes we bought last season will never work this season, though they're perfectly fine. It's why we make those decisions oftentimes because, well, the boss was right. Everybody's got a hungry heart. Everybody's got a hungry heart. Lay down your money and play your part, because everybody's got a hungry heart. Gerald May, in his helpful book, The Awakened Heart, says it this way with regards to our desires and how they tend towards discontentment. He says, there's a desire in each of us. It's at the center of ourselves. We were born with it and it never dies. We're often unaware of it, but it's always awake. Our true identity, our reason for being is to be found in that desire. Now, May is on to something really important. Especially in that last line when he tells us that those desires within you that you you have for good things within the world, but they're tethered to an ultimate desire that the world never seems to satisfy, is actually a clue to who you are and how the Lord has made you. It's actually a divine uh, hint As C.S. Lewis put it, when I find that I can't satisfy the desires within me in the world in which I live, I should draw the conclusion that I'm made for another world. Those desires will never satisfy. But I want you to know the, the psalmist is telling us here what Moses is teaching us, what the Bible is teaching us, that the problem is not with the desire. The problem is with how we try to satisfy it. You know, Jeremiah said that when he was speaking to the people of Israel during a time where they had walked away from the Lord. You'll, you'll know these words from Jeremiah 2.13. He says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, they've left me. The spring of living water. Notice the imagery that's used. Something to make you desire. And they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns. That cannot hold water. When Moses says to us in this prayer. As we are learning to number our days. That we only have a handful here on the earth. And they are fraught with affliction and trouble. And at the reality of the brevity of life. We are to number our days to gain a heart of wisdom. It should teach us first of all that we should cry out to God for mercy. But secondly that we should stay satisfied in God, in who He is, how He's designed us for Him. As Pascal had said years ago, there is that God-shaped vacuum in the soul of every man of which we'll never be satisfied unless we are in right relationship with the Lord. As Augustine would put it right, we are restless until we rest in Thee. It's it's Moses here who's saying, I want you to know that at the end of the day, all of the desires that drive you, maybe are your ambitions or your passions in life, ultimately can only find their end and satisfaction in God Himself. He is the source underneath all of the desires that are in your life. And it is only His love, only His love that will ultimately satisfy you. You see, His love is, well, His acceptance of us, His embrace of us. We have seen this in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That He has come to rescue us. He has come to bridge the gap, to be the mediator between God and man so that we're welcomed back in to the presence of the Lord. After Adam and Eve had eaten of the forbidden fruit in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God ousted them. From Eden, They went literally east from Eden and there were two angels that guarded the entrance to the garden brandishing swords. As if to say the only way you'll ever be back in this paradise, in the place where God is, right with his people is that someone will have to pass through a sword. Someone will have to open up the pathway. And of course that's what the Lord Jesus did. For God so loved the world. That He gave His only begotten Son. He wants you to be satisfied in the acceptance, in the approval, in the embrace that is now yours in Him. In fact, the way that He puts it here in the text is He wants us to know that it's a steadfast love. It's a love that's never going to fail. Do you see, if you find your satisfaction in something that will never fail, it means that you'll never be unsatisfied. Did you catch that? If you find your satisfaction in something that will never fail, then it means that your satisfaction will never be unsatisfied. You'll always be satisfied. Because that which you found satisfaction is steadfast. It's unfailing. God's never going to let you go. He wants you to know that every time you're discontent and you're disappointed and something doesn't come through, that that's actually a hint, a trace, a line to lead you right into his lap. To remember who your father is. To remember who loves you with an unfailing love. In other words, we are to live not for satisfaction in this world. We are to live from satisfaction in this world as Christians. From satisfaction. C.H. Spurgeon recalls the fact that Israel's pattern in the wilderness during Moses' writing here in Psalm 19 was that they would wake up in the morning... And they would go out and collect the bread that had fallen from the heavens to provide for God's people, uh, the manna. Spurgeon notes, could it be that Moses, as he writes, in the morning, let us be satisfied with your steadfast love, that he's, in a sense, hinting towards the fact that the people of God walked out every morning in the wilderness and were reminded that God loved them. That he would provide for them in the midst of a wasteland of a world. That he would drop bread from heaven if need be. He would give to them water from a rock when their lips were parched. That he was in every way, shape, and form the loving God who will meet the satisfaction of their ultimate desires. In the morning, when I rise, in the morning, when I rise, in the morning, When I rise, give me Jesus. You see, when Jesus speaks about Himself in John chapter 6, after feeding the 5,000, He says to His disciples, You know, it wasn't Moses who gave the people of God manna from heaven. It was My Father who gave them manna from heaven. And in fact, He has given now a much greater bread than manna. I am the bread of life. He who eats me will be satisfied. I am the spring of living water. He who drinks me, his thirst shall be quenched. You see, this is the Scripture and its teaching, isn't it? To to lead us and to guide us into a place where we have found our satisfaction in Him. Today as you're in the presence of the Lord, how's your heart? How's your heart really? What's it worried about? What's it longing for? What's it disappointed in? What does it wish was different? What does it whisper to you will be the solution? Is it whispering the name Jesus? Because if it's not, it's lying to you. Don't listen. It's lying to you. For it's only Jesus who can say, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest." Take my yoke upon you. It is light and it is easy. I have come to satisfy you in the love of my Father for you. You know, as he's praised this, he says, joy will come. Haven't you noticed that, that your greatest joy comes in the moments where you are truly satisfied in the Lord? I mean the deep kind of joy, not, not the fleeting kinds of happiness. You know, in a really good meal or in your sports team winning. No, no I mean the deep kinds of joy that actually can pass through afflictions, can pass through trials. And can still bubble to the surface. I do hope that in one sense that what drives you to worship. What brings you into uh, the chapel this day is a desire and a longing to know the joy of the Lord is your strength. To know that he is enough. To hear that afresh and again with a heart that has been so hungry. It's been eating and chewing on the things of the world all week. And you come in more famished And more thirsty than when you began. And you need someone. You need somehow to hear the words of life. And to know that the things that the world has promised are truly going to fail you. But that there is a fountain that's filled with blood from Emmanuel's veins. And if you come underneath its flood, it'll wash away all your guilty stains. And when those stains are washed. And he welcomes you in. He calls you his son and he calls you his daughter. And forevermore you know his satisfaction in you, his love for you. Is it enough that he loves you? Is it enough that he loves you? Is it satisfying enough that he loves you? Do you need other things? Do you need other things? Let the saturation of the love of God seep into your heart right now. There is nothing that you can do to compromise the love of God for you. I don't care what your week was like. And in ten years from now, as a follower of Christ, your love for Him is going to increase. And your satisfaction in that love is going to continue to deepen. And for all eternity, as you walk before his face, increasingly as you experience the banner over you is his love. As you experience it, the increasing of your love and affection and joy in the Lord is going to be infinite in nature and in scope. Do you realize everything in this life you're going to lose? Everything in this life you're going to lose, you're going to leave it behind. The one thing that will remain will be Christ. It will be Christ and all of His people. Satisfied in His love. That's what Moses is calling us to here. And knowing the joy that comes from being found in Him. Now listen, if you are satisfied in the love of God and you know His joy, one of the things that I think begins to happen is, is from that joy there becomes an energy. There comes a strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength, as we cited a second ago. Notice that's where the prayer goes. After he says, make us glad, even out of proportion to all of the afflictions and troubles that we've had, as you make us glad, satisfied in your love, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. You know what begins to happen when you're satisfied in the love of God and bubbling over in his joy? You become so self-forgetful that all you want to see is the work of God. All you want to see is the work of God. When you're living from this saturation point of the satisfaction of God's love, you go out into the world and you're watchful, you're looking and you're considering, Lord, I want to see your glory. I want you to show your work to this generation. Moses had seen that work through plagues. He had seen that work through the Red Sea. He had seen that work from manna from heaven and water from a rock. He had seen that work in Mount Sinai. Now, as he has been wandering 40 years in the wilderness, seeing a whole generation of the people of Israel die off. And he is not going to take the people of Israel into the land of Canaan. He's not going to lead the campaign to take over the Canaanites. It's going to be Joshua is going to do that. It's as if he's praying for the next generation. Oh Lord, show them your work. That this generation might know what that generation knew of the power of Almighty God. That even their children, he's thinking generationally, God will be your dwelling place in all generations. You see, he's pulling that thing through. Even to their children, I want them to see uh, the work of God. He wants them to be alive to it. He wants to see God's work shown. And isn't that exactly what God does? He does it with Joshua. You, you know what he does? It's this beautiful picture of really a, of a kind of envelope in the Scriptures. They, they entered the wilderness through the parting of the Red Sea and they'll exit the wilderness through the parting of the Jordan River. And as they parse, he parts the Jordan River and they cross over on dry land, it's the army of heaven that marries up to Joshua and the army of Israel and they take the land of Canaan. I mean, they, I mean we're talking about they walk around walls in Jericho and blow some trumpets and all the walls fall down. Friends, that's not by bow and sword. That's God showing His power. Do you see Moses' prayer was actually answered in time and space and history. For the people of Israel. This generation saw the work of the Lord. But notice this. It's not, the kind of, it's not the kind of showing of God's work where we just sit back and do nothing. It's the kind of work that we join Him in by faith. And trust Him to do what only He could do. Do you see what was the problem of the previous generation? Well, they went in. And they saw how big the Canaanites were. And they saw they were grasshoppers in the sight of the Canaanites. And they said, there's no way we can take them. I don't care what it is that God says. I know he says he's given us the land. I know that he says that we can take the land. We can't take the land. We've seen them. We can't do it. We're looking with human perspective. And as we look with human perspective, doubts fueled our minds. And we became faithless. We disbelieved the promises of God. As Moses is praying for a next generation to go in with faith to the same people who are just as big as they've always been. He wants them to go not with human perspective, but with divine sense of God's love and His faithfulness. Listen, you have walked with Him for 40 years in the wilderness, and He did never even allow your shoes to wear thin. He's been feeding you when there was no food. He's been giving you drink when there was no drink. He's been caring for you when plagues befell. He's been watching over you and guiding you to a place where once again He's asking you to trust Him. You see, 40 years later, they're at the same place again. Trust me. Go into the land of Canaan. And at the opening of the book of Joshua, isn't that what Joshua says? We will be successful and we will be prosperous as long as we meditate on the book of the law. As long as we hold on to The promises of God's Word. You see, the work of the Christian is a work of faith toward the promises of God. Not to do them in our own strength, but to go and watch Him do it. Go and watch Him do it. That's the story of the Christian. It's why he marries together the work of God in our work. Notice how he does it. Let your work be shown to your servants, your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. He's talking about their work and he's talking about God's work. He's talking about a unity between the two. You know, one of the most amazing things when you begin to watch and read in the scriptures is this, is that God actually likes to use you and me. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. Now don't get a big head about that. He doesn't need you. It has nothing to do with needing you. It's His joy and delight to use weak things in order to show forth His power and His glory. He loves to do it. He's determined to do it. All of the unfolding of human history, all of the expansion of his kingdom. He went and sent it to the heavenly places and sent us the Holy Spirit. And then he charged 12 men, fumbling and bumbling as we see that they are in the pages of the gospel, to be the foundation stones on which the church is built. Who would have done such a thing? Our God. Do you see part of what Moses is actually acknowledging and seeing here that, Lord, unless you establish the work of our hands, unless you use the work of our hands, we who labor, labor in vain. But if you establish the work of our hands, there is no one on this planet that can stay your hand. There's no one on this planet that can stay your hand. I love Ephesians 2 8 and 9, but I really love verse 10. Especially as it comes to this point. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. You didn't do it. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. You didn't do it. So that no one may boast. And then it says this. For we are His workmanship. We are His workmanship. He's crafted us. Created in Christ Jesus, notice this, for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. That's why I love the book of Joshua. When God says to them, listen, I've given you the land. Now go take it. Well, I thought you'd given us the land. I did. Now go take it. He did not say I've given you the land. you got nothing to do. I've given you the land. Now get to work. You see, that's what he's saying to you. As you're satisfied in my love, as you're quenched with my grace, as my favor is falling upon you, you don't become lazy. You become industrious. You become eager in the work of ministry. But you don't become over-responsible. I've got to do it. (laughs) Yes, you've got to go, but you can't do it. Now get going. God will meet you along the way. God will meet you along the way. He will surely do it. He is faithful. He is faithful. You know, all of the Christian life is a lot like teaching your children to tie their shoes. Apparently, I'm going to have another child to teach how to tie their shoes. It's when the the parents take the child's hands, right, and they... They wrap their hands around the child's hands and they, they, they try to teach them the loop and they, they wrap the loop and they, they pull it through. And, and when they do it, they go, look, daddy, look, mommy, I did it. Yes, you did, son. Sure you did. All of our work in the kingdom of God is just like that. All of our work in the kingdom of God is just like that. You've got to do it. Tie, tie your shoes. I got you. We're going to tie your shoes. I'm building the kingdom of God. God is building the kingdom of God. It's really amazing, isn't it? Because this passage says that God, well, that God establishes the work of our hands, and that Moses' prayer is that God would establish the work of our hands. And, and you know, by historical record and by um, Worldly demonstration, um, n- Moses' hands never really established anything. Uh, Edmund Clowney makes the, the note, the point that um, Moses wandered around forever from one place to another. He never really had a dwelling place geographically. He's in Egypt with a family that's not really his family, and then he's tossed out and he. Goes and he goes a shepherd in a place that's not his home, and then he goes back to Egypt, which is not his home, and then he wanders in the wilderness for forty years, and he never sees the land of promise. That's Moses's life. When you're thinking about it in terms of that, nothing is actually established. That's why Clowney makes the note. If you want to architecturally or or archaeologically, I should say, archaeologically confirm that the people of Israel wandered forty years in the wilderness, well, good luck, because it was all tents. There were no columns. There were no streets. There's nothing to unearth. After they left, it was, you know, give the the wind a day in the desert and all the tracks and imprints are gone. It's as if they were never there. In the midst of what looked like vanity, vanishing before your eyes of the place for a short time you called home, God was actually establishing the work of Moses' hand. Because the work of Moses' hands wasn't in columns and streets and buildings and in gardens. The work of Moses' hands was laboring in the promises of God for the people of God. It was laboring in the promises of God for the people of God. Listen, listen, let's face it. Almost none of us are going to be remembered in history. I mean, if we do an architectural dig in 300 years, how many of us are going to be found? And anything that we did be found? Almost none of us. Don't despair. God will establish the work of your hands. God will establish the work of your hands. He will accomplish the work of your hands. You don't accomplish it. You don't accomplish it. And we won't know the fullness of His work shown in and through and established through your efforts until the day when we are at the dwelling place of God, you see. But we won't, we won't know it until that day. Do you see, that's what's remarkable when you begin to consider the, the power of the gospel is that it's, 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 it's a tent called a tabernacle. It's a, it's a stone building called a temple. But the real temple of the living God, His name is Jesus Christ. And it's in that moment where the showing of the work of God is actually accomplished with human hands. Isn't that remarkable? That God has truly shown His greatest work through human hands. He's established it. He he does His work in that way. And then He says to you, all of you who are in Christ Jesus have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, you know what you are? 1 Corinthians 3, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're a dwelling place with God right now. Don't don't ever say, oh, I can't do anything big in the kingdom of God. Look at little old me. Oh, I see little old you just as I see little old me. But the Spirit of God is in you. The Spirit of God is in you. He will establish the work of your hands. Friends, it's, it's my prayer that by God's grace, through Christ whose temple was destroyed, his body, and three days rose again from the dead, that your body, which will be destroyed should Jesus tarry, and probably not much left of your legacy here on earth for human history to write about, will one day be resurrected too. And we'll know the real fruit of the establishment of God's work in your hands. Just give it time. Wait for the dwelling place of our God. Friends, as we labor together in Christ, let's encourage one another with these words. In days that may seem vain and fleeting and full of trouble and affliction, God's kingdom is advancing. He will do His work and He will establish the work of your hands. Satisfy yourself in His love. And from his love. Let's get to work. Father in heaven, we would pray now that you would meet us in these truths. You'd begin to stir, as it were, that inconsolable longing. Embed it back down pretty deeply in the satisfaction of your love. And then from the fullness of your love that you would release us into kingdom ambition. Kingdom ambition. To see your work shine and by your grace be a part of it. Lord, touch each of our hearts with the truths of this glorious passage and meet us by grace, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.